Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn to Mark chapter 15, and let's begin in verse 6. It says, Now at that feast he, meaning Pilate, released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them, And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Now here you have... um, these, these two men, the, the one being the Lord and the other Barabbas. And, you know, when you, when you look at these two men, this is, this is the only place in the Bible, I mean, in these, these gospel accounts, uh, where Barabbas appears. Uh, he wouldn't really be a, a major character in the Bible, but, but certainly in the events here leading up to the crucifixion, uh, he is he's an important character. It's mentioned in, in uh, the gospel accounts. And in one way, there's a lot of similarities between the Lord and Barabbas, but in another way, there's a lot of contrasts as well. Uh, the name Barabbas, it, it literally means son of the father, okay? And Bar, when you see that in a, in a name, that's Aramaic for son or son of. So if you think of Peter, for instance, is called Simon Bar-Jonah. He's the, the son of Jonah, or you have other of the disciples with names like Bartholomew. Um, we saw in a, a previous lesson a man named Bartimaeus. And that, that word Bar means son of. And it's often used much like a, like a surname, okay? Where, where they wouldn't necessarily have a, a family name that might be used generation after generation, but you would, have, you would be referred to by who your, who your father was. And... Bar Abbas here, the son of Abbas, that, that word Abba or Abbas can be a name. Uh, it's, it's been used as a name and it may just refer, it may have been literally the, the father of, of this man Barabbas. Uh, but again, the word, the word is probably familiar to you. Abba, remember just a, a chapter before this where the Lord was in the garden and he, and he called God the Father Abba. Right, which is that Aramaic, again, Aramaic word for for father, and and so here you have this man named Barabbas, the the son of the father, and according to to other other sources, you know, Barabbas would be like a like a surname or a last name. According to other other sources, uh, this man's first name, his given name, was actually Jesus, just like the Lord. 
uh, that he would be Jesus Barabbas. Now, he's not referred to that as scripture, but, but you know, there seems to be some evidence from other places that that's what he was called. And, and this man, Barabbas, it describes him being involved in an insurrection, and he had committed murder in the insurrection. Uh, he's also referred to as a thief. And, you know, different, different accounts will refer to him in, in different ways, but it's probably likely that this man was one of the zealots. Now, remember that there were three major, major sects there at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, which they, they argued a lot about, you know, interpretation of the word of God and, and that kind of thing. The, the zealots were very much a, a political type movement. And they, they very much uh, resented the Roman rule that was over them. And they were working toward the day when they could kick out the Romans. And so the zealots from time to try, time would try and, and uh, cause these rebellions. Um, they would, when opportunity presented itself, uh, they would kill Roman soldiers and, and that kind of thing. Now, um, it, it's important to, to understand. I mean, you might think, uh, knowing that Israel is... God's chosen people. He established that nation. Uh, you, might, you might have some sympathies there with the zealots, you know, that they would want to get Israel out from Roman rule. But understand where Israel is at uh, historically here at this time. If you go back, go back to the book of Jeremiah and go to Jeremiah chapter 27. You know, there was a, there was a time when God originally established Israel as a, as a nation uh, they were not to, to make any kind of, of treaty or, or anything, especially with the nations in the land of Canaan, but they were also not to, not to join themselves to other nations. There was always the temptation, uh, especially since in, in Israel's early days, you know, there were various Canaanite nations that they had to deal with. But, but Israel was always, you had two great empires, one to the north and one to the south. You had the Assyrian Empire in the north. You had the, the Egyptians in the south. And the two of them were often in conflict with one another, and Israel's right in the middle. And so there was always this temptation on the part of Israel to either try and join with the Assyrians against the Egyptians or join with the Egyptians against the Syrians as a, as a pragmatic type decision. And the Lord told them they weren't to do that. They were to rely on him. And, and God would often use these other nations then to punish Israel when they weren't relying on him. But there comes a change in, in how God was dealing with that nation um, when, as a result of their continued rebellion, God brings against them the Babylonians, now a, a, another empire. In fact, the Babylonians had defeated the Assyrians. If, if you're familiar with the history of the nation of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were later defeated by the Babylonians. And then the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah eventually is, is uh, defeated by the Babylonians. And Israel entered into a time that is referred to in Scripture as the times of the Gentiles, where they were not going to rule over themselves, but they were going to be ruled over by Gentile nations. And that times of the Gentiles, where it's described in, in Bible prophecy, really is something that extends until the second coming of Christ. Uh, in fact, once the Lord, the, the Lord said that it was, it was he who had given all of the nations into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And if you notice here in Jeremiah 27, 
Let's, let's start in verse 4. The Lord here is sending Jeremiah to give a message to King Zedekiah, the king of Judah. And he says in verse 4, the Lord tells Jeremiah, uh, Command them to say unto their masters, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus, say ye, thus shall ye say unto your masters. Uh, Zedekiah has sent messengers to Jeremiah to really to try and get him to say that, that the Lord will be with them if they try and defeat the Babylonians. Uh, but here's what the Lord tells Jeremiah to tell the messengers to, to take to King Zedekiah. Uh, verse 5, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the very time of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith the Lord, with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. Uh, now, now the false prophets were telling Zedekiah uh, that if he would, if he would uh, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, this, by this time, Israel had already been defeated by Babylon. And Zedekiah actually is a, a puppet king of Babylon. He's been set up by King Nebuchadnezzar to rule over, over Israel. But he gets this idea that he's going to rebel. And that he, he has the idea that this would be some good thing that the Lord is going to honor and is going to, to help uh, them defeat Babylon. But you notice what what uh, Jeremiah says, therefore, hearken not ye to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, ye shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie unto you to remove you far from your land, and that I should drive you out, and ye should perish. But the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, those will I let remain still in their own land, saith the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell therein. And, and so you see here, um, you know, rather than, than the Lord telling Israel to resist these other nations, here he tells them if they want to stay in their land, they need to serve Babylon. Now that's a, that's a big change um, here from what God had been telling Israel previously. And... Understand that, that uh, you know, you have, you have Babylon. When you get into the book of Daniel, you see how there's going to be a progression of Gentile nations. In fact, even here it indicates that there's going to come a time where Babylon isn't going to be the one ruling over them anymore. But you see where uh, Babylon is succeeded by the Medes and the Persians and they by the Greeks and they by the Romans. And it's those Romans that are in control there at the, at the time of Christ. And so when Christ is out teaching and these questions come up about whether somebody ought to pay the tax to the Romans and that kind of thing, Christ teaches subjection to the Romans, right? But here you have a, a man, Barabbas, who is leading insurrection against the Romans. And, and so where Christ, it, it really, these two men, both of them, there's a, there's a kingdom involved, 
right? But what Barabbas has in mind is that if Israel can just kick out the Romans, then they can, they can restore the kingdom again and have their kingdom back. Now, Christ also is preaching a, a restoration of a kingdom, but he says it's not something that's going to come from here. It's, it's not something where he was trying to put together an army and fight and kick out the Romans. When, when it's time for that kingdom to be established, it's the Lord himself that's going to do it. He doesn't need to, to have these insurrections and, and things. And so there you see a, a stark difference between Barabbas and the Lord. Now, in some ways, Barabbas would be much more what, what many Israelites were looking for in the Messiah. Many Israelites, including many of the disciples, were looking for a, a military leader who was going to come in and kick out the Romans, right? And, and so somebody like Barabbas could be a very popular figure uh, because, you know, no, no, no occupied nation like that likes to be, be living under some outside rule. Understand that that times of the Gentiles has not, has not ended yet today. Whenever, whenever these kings tried to get Israel out of Gentile power, it always was disastrous for them because the Lord had decreed they were gonna, they, this was the times of the Gentiles. And this was going to continue until the Lord delivers them and, and sets up that kingdom. But you, you see here, so these two men are set before the people. Now, one of them, the Lord, is innocent and the other is clearly guilty. Uh, Barabbas is, is clearly guilty. And Pilate gives the people a, a choice. Uh, according to the tradition, Pilate would release a prisoner. He presents these, these two to the people. And the, the uh, scribes and, and Pharisees and the priests are there, you know, active, trying to convince the people, don't, don't ask for Jesus. Don't ask for, for, you know, Jesus Christ. Ask for Barabbas. And, and that's what they do. Now, there's another important, important type that we want to look at. And I want you to go back to the book of Leviticus, okay? The book of Leviticus and go to chapter 16. Now, here, if you, as you have these two men, um, one is going to be offered as a sacrifice. The other is going to be set free. And you know, in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, there are, there are many examples of that. Now, we're going to look at just, just one example of that, but uh, there are others as well. And it has to do with the Day of Atonement. Now, now, understand that everything there with the Day of Atonement is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, there are several different sacrifices that are associated with the Day of Atonement. Uh, remember, the Day of Atonement, was, was a day when atonement was made for the congregation of Israel. Now, you know, there were individual sins that people would commit that they would bring sacrifices during the year and, and that kind of thing for their sins. But on the day of atonement, there was an atonement that was made for the whole congregation of Israel. It was on that day of atonement that was the only day in the year when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. It's when he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and all those powerful symbols of, of uh, that atonement being made there, all of which points to Christ. But there's also another uh, uh, aspect to the day of atonement that sometimes is overlooked. And let's look at, at Leviticus chapter 16 and... Start in verse 5. The, the previous verses 
talk about uh, some of the other sacrifices that are brought. It talks about how the high priest is to put on all of his special garments that he wore as the high priest. And in verse 5, it says, He shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, it's these two kids of the goats that that we're going to look at here. I want you to notice, it says he's going to bring two kids of the goats, but it says he's going to bring them for a sin offering. There's going to be two goats brought here, but only one of them is going to be a sin offering. Okay, there's only one sin offering. It's not bring two kids of the goats for two sin offerings. It's bring two kids of the goats for a sin offering. Uh, Verse 6 says that, that Aaron has to offer... A, an offering for himself. Now, of any of these sacrifices here, this is the one that doesn't really have a, have a counterpart with Christ. Because, because Aaron, being a sinner himself, before he could come and, and offer for the people, he had to offer a special, special sacrifice for himself so that ceremonially he, he wouldn't have any sin that hadn't been offered for so that then he could function as the high priest on, on the part of the congregation. The Lord didn't have any sin of his own that had to first be offered for. But you notice in in verse 7, it says that he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, this casting of lots, in, in these things, when the Lord instructs them to do things by casting of lots, and there were many things in the Old Testament where the Lord uh, instructed them to use that method in order to, to you know, divide things up or, or choose various things. And the idea there is not just that it's, that, it, that it's an arbitrary choice and it doesn't matter which one the lot falls to. It's, it's not that it's a random thing, but rather the idea is that in these cases, the Lord would direct the lot Uh, as he saw fit. So when Israel came into the land and they had to divide up the land and decide whose inheritance was where, the Lord instructed them to do it by lot. I remember when they first chose Saul as their king, uh, they they cast lots first for the the tribes and then the families, and, and then eventually it came down to Saul. And that was the Lord directing all of that. It wasn't just that it was a random thing. It's that the Lord was was directing that process. And you see here, the, the lots are cast to see which of these two goats is going to be the one for the Lord. That's what it calls it there, the one lot for the Lord. Now, the other, it says, is for the scapegoat. And this, this word here, scapegoat, uh, we use the word, but we use it in, in a little bit different way than what we're going to see what happens with the scapegoat here. It, it's, I mean, the word comes from the Bible, uh, the way it's used in common usage, again, is kinda, it kind of misses some of the point of, of what the Bible describes as the scapegoat. Uh, the, the word scapegoat, the, the, the first part of the word scape, it literally comes from the word escape. And this scapegoat, when we, when we use the word, we mean um, you know, somebody who's going to be blamed for everything, who didn't necessarily do it, they're going you know, to bear the blame. And there's some element of that here as well. But, but the actual word that's used there, uh, it's a Hebrew word, azazel. And the word means the, sometimes it, it might be described as being the goat of departure. Um, it, it, there's a, you know, the one part of the word is the word for goat. 
And the other part has the idea of something being removed. And it has the idea of it being completely removed. All right? That it's, that it's just completely done away with. All right? And that's what's translated as scapegoat. Now, it's interesting that that word azazel, that Hebrew word, uh, in the Bible, it's only used in these passages where it refers to the scapegoat. But later on, uh, the, the Hebrews in Hebrew literature outside of the Bible, that's a, a term that they used as a name for Satan. You know, Satan is, is often uh, associated with a goat. And it, that, that departure, again, has the idea of, of something being destroyed, being done away with. And um, in fact, some, some of the modern Bibles uh, will, will leave that word as azazel, uh, although that gives a little bit of a, of a wrong impression because, you know, then people almost make it out as if like this, this goat is, a, is in some way a sacrifice to a false god or something. Um, I, you know, I mean, scapegoat is a, is a good way to translate it, but understand that, that that departure, that doing away with something is something that also refers to Satan himself and the way that he's going to be done away with in the lake of fire. Uh, and so you see that there's one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Verse 9 describes, and, and the verses after that, uh, it describe how the... the uh, Goat, verse 9 says, Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. There's the sin offering of the two goats. The, the one on whom the Lord's lot fell, he's the sin offering. That's the, that's the goat that ceremonially uh, bears the sin of the congregation and is put to death uh, as, a, as a payment, as an atonement for that sin. Now, both of these goats are going to be described as bearing sin. But that one is, is the one that's offered on the altar as a sin offering for the sin of the congregation. But verse 10 says, But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, you know, upon, upon first reading that, it might sound like uh, the scapegoat gets a it's a good deal, right? The one goat's put to death and the, and the scapegoat is let go. Come down to verse 21. And notice that it's not as if the sin offering is considered guilty and the scapegoat is considered innocent, as some people might, might uh, uh, present it here in the passage. But notice in verse 21, it says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. You see that it's, it's not that the scapegoat gets off. You see, the scapegoat bears iniquities. Now, the, the sin offering bears iniquities and is sacrificed for them. But the scapegoat bears iniquities and he's sent out into the wilderness. It says specifically into a, a land that's not inhabited. And you shouldn't get the idea that this is a merciful thing for this goat. Uh, the, the intent here, again, remember that goat is, is the goat of, of absolute removal, absolute departure. And the idea here is that this goat, rather than being sacrificed on the altar, it still bears iniquities, but it goes out into the wilderness bearing those iniquities 
it, it's never allowed to come back into the camp. And the idea is that the goat dies out there in the wilderness. In fact, if, if you look at the history of how this ritual was performed later on, um, actually the, the uh, Israelites would take the goat and, and they would take it out into the wilderness and push it off a cliff so it would die. Uh, they certainly had the idea that this was not that the scapegoat was receiving mercy and, and going free in the sense of, of receiving mercy, but that the scapegoat was going out into the wilderness to die, and they, they developed a ritual that would hasten that along, uh, where they would, they would push it over the cliff. This, this uh, scapegoat, certainly you see here in Scripture that the scapegoat is never allowed to come back into the camp. It's not as if it's not as if the uh, you know the scapegoat just goes back able to to join the flock and and go back to its life, but that scapegoat it bears sin out there in the wilderness to the end of its of its uh, life. Okay, and you know not considering some of those things is what I think sometimes leads to a little bit of of misinterpretation of the scapegoat. Because in in looking at these things, probably the most common explanation of what the the scapegoat represents, um, many of the the commentaries will say that both of the goats here represent Christ. Certainly we can see in the sin offering a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about the scapegoat? Does the scapegoat represent Christ, this goat that bears iniquity out into the wilderness and, and, you know... That, that is unclean, where the man even, who even let it had to, had to uh, wash before he comes back in. Some commentaries will say that they represent two different aspects of what Christ accomplished, that the sacrifice, the sin offering, represents the payment, and the, the uh, scapegoat represents the putting away of sin. Uh, one, of the, one of the verses that's used for that is the verse over in Hebrews where it talks about Christ you know, putting, away of, putting away sin. But, but the verse says that he put away sin by sacrifice of himself. Right? So, the, so the sin offering represents the putting away of sin already by itself without having another uh, additional goat. But as we consider Christ and Barabbas there before the crucifixion, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting parallels there. Because here you have Barabbas, who still is bearing sin, and yet he's, he's let go. He's let go bearing that sin, where Christ dies as a, as a sacrifice for sin. And I, I don't think it would be correct to say that the, that the scapegoat itself represents Barabbas. But in a lot of ways, the scapegoat and Barabbas represent the same things. Um, you know, there's, there's two ways for sin to be paid for. The Lord Jesus Christ paid for sin on the cross of Calvary as a sin offering, uh, you know, bearing bearing the sin uh, of the world in the the justice of God. But you know that that when the sinner who winds up in hell uh, is judged, he's bearing sin there, right? I mean, that's why that, that unbeliever is there in hell. If he didn't have any sin, he wouldn't, God wouldn't be just in sending him there. But that unbeliever, uh, you know, bears that iniquity. And every person, when they stand before God, they can stand before God like, like uh, you know, being identified with, for instance, here in Leviticus, this sin offering that's been made. Or they can stand before God bearing their own sin, like the scapegoat that's sent out into the wilderness. They can stand before God. If you think of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and Barabbas as representing two kinds of humanity. 
you know, the, the issue that divides between humanity and the sight of God today is not whether somebody's Jew or Gentile. It's not whether they're, they're man or woman. It's not those kinds of things. It's are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Are you in Christ where, where the benefit of Christ, Christ's offering is applied to you? Or are you in Adam where you're bearing the curse and, and bearing sin? And, and you see this scapegoat goes out into the wilderness bearing a curse of sin. Barabbas leaves there. He leaves the judgment of Pilate and he's set free, but he's set free bearing the curse of his sin. Now Christ likewise bears sin, but Christ bears sin as a sacrifice. And once that sacrifice was complete, that sin is done away. The believer is able to stand before God with his sin having been dealt with completely in Christ. The unbeliever bears their own sin. And, and in a lot of ways, the unbeliever might seem to be more free than what the believer is, right? I mean, there's some things that a believer is subject to that an unbeliever is not subject to. But the unbeliever, like that scapegoat, winds up in that uninhabited place, winds up in that wilderness, bearing that iniquity. And, and so the question for every person is, where are you? Where are you going to be found when you stand before God? Are you going to be found before God in Christ? Or are you going to be found before God as someone who is clearly guilty, who's bearing their own iniquity and, and will suffer the judgment of God for that? Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.